Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Swim Swim podcast episode number 12. The someone who isn't me on this one is Mr. Alan Moore. And I was really excited that this actually got to happen because uh, I, I didn't think it would happen, to be honest with you. I, I kind of had a couple of mutual friends, but I didn't want to punish them about like sort of, oh, can you put me in contact with Alan and stuff? Because it just would have been a bit weird. So I kind of fired off an email to somebody I didn't know who I thought would be a good point of contact. And after a few um mails backwards and forwards with different people um we got to make it happen which i was really excited about so i packed up my olympus recorder and a couple of mics got on the train went to northampton uh and went to the lodge studios in northampton which is an amazing studios there and uh and jay and mark who run that place uh let me set up in their incredible live room that they've got and i chatted for over two hours with alan about magic and writing etc Now, this episode is actually the first part of that conversation because I figured two hours was a lot to get through, especially as uh, a lot of the stuff that was getting talked about was was pretty deep and, and, uh, you know, is a lot to take in. So um, this is the first part. The second part is going to be up shortly once I've finished the cover portrait. And in this one, we discuss the creative process. Uh, magic, the morality in its application, taking in stuff like Austin Osmond Spare and John Dee and the process of that. So this is Alan Moore, part one. Enjoy. I'd start off saying about what the thing is with the podcast. Is I've only I've only started doing it in the last. I started in January mm. because of the the radio show I do. It's, it's been so far. It's been mainly musicians, but I found that I don't know whether it's because of my personal interest in things or or, or just because it is a recurrent thing for, with a lot of people that make art and music. Is that it always kind of ends up in a similar place where we start talking about where where that comes from yeah and how it comes about and sometimes it feels a bit like not pulling teeth do you know what i mean because a lot of people don't want to talk about it because they feel it like it makes them sound um a bit you well know. also i believe that a lot of people a lot of working artists they have a kind of superstition about it it's i think brian eno said something similar that uh, the last thing that most artists want to do is to examine their own creative processes. Yeah. It's as if they're riding a bike and they fear that if they stop and think about how they're actually riding the bike for more than a couple of seconds, they're probably going to fall off. Yeah. Uh, or that if you mess around with it, it might stop working because we don't know what it is. Yeah. So we're going to be naturally afraid of sort of all of these uh, because we're not sure what our creative processes actually are we are subject to I think unnatural terrors and fears about them if we were professional drivers say if we were Chris Evans or someone like that then presumably if you spent a lot of time driving you would at least want to know the the vague mechanics of what's under the bonnet that if your car stops you would want to know at least a few basic things that you could try to get it to start again um this must surely be the case with anybody whose life is dependent upon the the creativity yeah that they can turn out i mean like um no, I've always thought that uh, 
it's far better to try and understand these processes at as deep a level as possible. I yeah, I agree. Yeah, as I said, a lot a lot of people will, will generally get around to a certain point and then and then you know, when you press that point to, to people and say, I, I believe that there is a certain degree of you're you're acting on things that are moving through you. Well, it's kind of uh, I remember that um long ago when I used to attend conventions uh, there was one particular question from the audience that me and my fellow semi-professionals would single out for particular sneering and jeering which was where do you get your ideas from yeah. and we would heap scorn upon anybody who asked that and say what a stupid question because basically we didn't know yeah, we couldn't answer that question, and like I was saying, for creative people whose lives depend upon this, that has got to be a bit unnerving. You know, it's uh, like being a farmer and having no clue <laughs> as to how the weather works or how kind of crop rotation works or anything. Um, yeah, so I mean, this was one of the things that led me at the age of forty to start thinking about magic yeah um a bit more seriously and to overcome some of my prejudices perhaps see this is the thing that i find interesting is that um you very famously said that, that on your birthday that you were going to declare yourself a magician to but surely at that point it wasn't it kind of a given anyway and, and i remember you saying that mo a lot of people didn't really bat an eyelid and is that do you think that's because they were either like He's, he's having a moment or well, because it was already accepted that that was the case uh, I don't think it was accepted that that was the case Okay, but I would say that there are some grounds for saying that when you say something absurd and theatrical such as I am henceforth a magician that uh, there will probably have been precursors uh, in fact I realised upon starting to understand magic a little bit better yeah. that I had been... that some of this stuff is fairly basic, or at least fairly basic to me, hmm. that some of these things I had been doing for years yeah. without realising what they were. But to actually state that you are a magician... Um, that's quite a big thing. Yeah. It's because, for one thing, you're putting everybody who you tell that to into quite a dilemma because you're more or less forcing them to choose whether you've gone mad, which would be a very, very distressing thing for most friends and acquaintances, or that you haven't gone mad which is potentially worse because if you haven't gone mad then surely that forces them to reconsider their own definitions of sanity reality yeah um which is a bigger can of worms uh so no i i think i said that it was mainly people in my immediate family who didn't bat an eyelid Okay. Um, there was certainly quite a bit of eyelid batting in the in the general community, yeah. uh, and probably understandably so. But um, people like my mother, my aunt, uh, all of my aunts, um, they just seemed to accept it. I even got the feeling that. It was a kind of a family thing that maybe happened every couple of hundred years and it was nothing to get too excited about. Yeah. Um, I haven't got any direct evidence for that, but uh, my paternal grandmother, my nan, uh, who was a terrifying woman, uh, her profession, um, at least earlier in her life, was uh, a deathmonger. Um, Deathmongers, I believe, only existed, at least by that name, within the boroughs of Northampton. 
uh, with only within that little area that I was born in, about half a square mile. And what a death monger was, was uh, in a poor neighbourhood where you couldn't afford midwives and you couldn't afford undertakers. Um, the death monger was the woman, it was always a woman, who lived down the end of the road or in the next street, who for sixpence a shilling would come round and take care of all that. Um, I think that the name Deathmonger may have arisen, I'm not sure when it first came into currency. I suspect that it probably would have occurred when uh, it was no longer safe to refer to people as witches. Yeah. Um, because basically that was the function of the village wise woman hmm. or witch. It was largely childbirth, undertaking, herbal cures, things like that. Yeah. This is possibly why uh, the Guild of Barber Surgeons were so keen upon uh, promoting the witch trials and the witch burnings or the witch hangings. Um, largely because they didn't see why it should be women who were in control of uh, women's reproductive processes rather than the Guild of Barber Surgeons. Um, so I suppose in short, there may have been precedents yeah. in my family. At least the kind of belief that I was talking about didn't seem entirely, un entirely unknown, hmm. you know. Yeah, it's, it's wow, that's fascinating because I, I, I kind of, re I, I'd sort of reasoned it to myself that 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 people would probably come to that conclusion somewhat anyway. But as you said, to actually make it as a, say it, state it as a declaration, that's the thing, isn't well, it? Well, it's one of the things that is empowering about that is that there is a considerable amount of risk involved. Hmm. Um, at that point, uh, what nineteen ninety three. Um, I had yet to do a lot of my, or yet to complete a lot of my major works. Um, my reputation was by no means set in stone and I was risking that reputation yeah. because, which was pretty much all I had hmm. because the most likely reaction to somebody saying that you're a magician, saying that they were a magician is to say, uh, yeah, do some magic then. And if you can't sort of pull the rabbit out of the hat to say, well, in that case, you're mad yeah. or a fraud. Um, which, so there is a certain amount of, yeah, a certain amount of risk. And that in itself is quite empowering hmm. because you are more or less saying, look, I'm serious about this and I don't care what the world thinks of me. I'm going to do this whatever anybody thinks or says. That in itself is quite a, a statement, quite a declaration. And it's really powerful. Yeah, it's very powerful. And then w once you did that, you know, that's when you started to... Were you aware of... You must have been aware of various... I don't know. Because I think magic nowadays is, is very much like... Um, the way it's approached it, there's two ways obviously there's there's you know you get your, your people which are following a very set tradition you know like i don't know like the golden dawn or whatever mm. but then you also have through the 80s when you had <coughs> excuse me through like um music mainly you have with bands like coil and with psychic tv and where you had topi it just seemed like that opened the door for where it felt like it was it was a very punk rock thing and like anyone could start practicing mm. chaos magic and they, and they were and it was like bricolage everybody was taking I'll have a bit of that and we'll have a bit of spare and we'll have a bit of this and yeah uh, I so you I, what I meant sorry. was you must have been were you aware of all these things well I was I've been aware of magic since I was a five year old child but yeah. I had a five-year-old child's conception of what magic was. Yeah. As I got older, I realised that I was probably right the first time. Um, five-year-old children, I think, perhaps have an instinctive grasp of this kind of thing. Yeah. So, yes, uh, and when I was, um, what, around 11, 12, 
I was reading the supernatural fiction of Dennis Wheatley, and I would contend, and I think Ian Sinclair would agree with me, 11 or 12 is the only age that you can read Dennis Wheatley and take him seriously without noticing all of the racism and the colonialism and all the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, uh, around that time, I became interested in a 12-year-old boy manner in the occult. Yeah. Uh, it lasted for about a year and didn't really yield much. Uh, I was aware of the contemporary occult scene, um, such as it was. Uh, I was largely aware of it through um, unusual sources, uh, mainly through Joe Barocco's Chaos magazine. Okay. Uh, K-A-O-S um Joe Barocco is, I think, one of the most fascinating individuals on the magic scene. He, um, he's, uh, well, depending upon how he's feeling, he is, uh, he's a really good diabolist, um, quite seriously. Yeah. And there's not many people who, although they can talk about this stuff, Yeah. There's not many people who can actually do it. Uh, I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Joel's Chaos magazine had a very, very irreverent approach to the magic scene itself. Um, and he was uh, perhaps not the biggest admirer of the Chaos magic movement. And... That was a, an opinion that I think both myself and the late Steve Moore came to share with him. Okay. I mean, like in our history of magic, the lives of the great enchanters, old Moore's lives of the great enchanters, um, that will be forthcoming in the Moon and Serpent Bumper Book of Magic, where we run through 50 of the most important, in our opinion, uh, magical figures, whether they were real or not. Okay. Because there's really no uh, difference, hmm. you know, uh, or very little difference, uh, in that they have contributed to the idea of magic. Yeah. Uh, but when we get to the 80s, um, we are quite critical of the chaos magic movement. I mean, this is because you can see that it was almost symmetrical to the birth of the New Age movement um, on the other side of the Atlantic, yeah. but in the same time period, in the 1980s. Yeah. Both of these were largely concerned with practical magic, with actually effecting change in the material world. Hmm. With the New Ages, it was... Um, largely asking the angels how to plan your teen witch slumber party um, generally with the chaos magicians it in practice it would either be requests for money uh, or I mean basically I have big problems with that kind of results based magic anyway I'm not certain that it is ethical yeah. Um, in my opinion, that is treating magic as more or less a neutral, a morally neutral force like electricity, uh, whereas that is not my experience of magic. Mm. Magic seems to have agency. Um, there is at least the, the, the feeling, uh, the sensation of a kind of um, presence and personality, sometimes of a sense of humour. Mm. Uh, I would say that in general, if you want money, do some work. <laughs> uh, yeah. If you want somebody to love you, then make yourself somebody worthy of being loved. Yeah. Don't try and coerce supernatural beings into basically holding her down for you because I mean 
where's the morality in that? How yeah. is that not ripe? Yeah. Um, and pretty much everything else that has a material, even if it's asking for help for a sick friend, yes, that's fine. But also go along and visit them. Yeah. You know, do something practical in the real world. I believe that anything that can be accomplished with a bit of effort in the real world should be left to the physical material world. Yeah. But I believe magic is for the immaterial world. I shouldn't have said real world a moment or two ago. Uh, it's just something that you slip into occasionally. Yeah. Both of them are real. And magic it has, I think, as its concerns, I don't think that you should use this immaterial force or whatever it is to accomplish material ends. I think that that is almost classically satanic. I don't think it's a mistake that the Ten of Wands in the tarot deck, uh, which is to say wands which are the highest, most spiritual force, the will, being brought to bear upon the Ten, which is Malkut, which is the material world. And that card is called Oppression. And it suggests that any large spiritual force brought to bear upon the material world is going to end in oppression and tyranny of one sort or another. Well, I think just taking a look around the, the way things are at the moment, you could, that's very much a, a clear, absolutely clear thing. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, and this is yeah, it's the root of all oppression. Yeah, I mean, like so, um, and also. Some of the chaos magic stuff. I remember when Steve Moore briefly joined uh, a chaos magic temple in South London. Um, he didn't really get on with it well. He he asked why the robes had to be black, and was told that that was the most ignorant question that uh, the questioner had ever heard. Um, I suspect he didn't know. Yeah. Um, and uh, also Steve was saying that the kind of magical discourse in the group uh, was largely yesterday I did a sigil to see a black dog and then I saw one um, yes I'm, I'm sure you did and uh, yeah uh, or some people asking how the, or suggesting that they thought they had an elemental trapped in their wand and didn't know how to get it out, uh, to which Steve had said, well, look, firstly, are we sure that elementals exist? Are we sure that they can get trapped in ones? Uh, is this causing you any problems that are kind of identifiable or discernible? Uh, so, yeah, he didn't last long um, in, the, uh, in the Chaos Magic group. Yeah. That, um, perhaps I shouldn't make a, a blanket sort of condemnation of the movement but I have to ask how much it actually achieved Yeah. Um, I can see that it was probably a necessary revolution against the the leftover magical orders of the 19th century um, at the same time most of those magical orders were either disbanded or were having doing a pretty good job of attacking each other I am not sure that the magical state um, magic in England I'm not sure that it's been in a particularly healthy state for quite a while hmm. and I think Sorry. Sorry. No, I didn't want to interrupt. I was just curious. Do you think that um, do you think that's because the people that um, that are approaching it are totally misguided, like you said, doing things for the wrong reasons? But then even Spare made like racing cards to try and yeah, fix, he did. But he the horses. It's, he sold them. Yeah. Uh, that was how he got money. Yeah. By selling the racing cards that he'd done. Yes, they were an occult product. But uh, it was a completely fair exchange. Which is amazing as well when you think about it as well, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like, 
Spare is astonishing. Mm. Um, the more that you know about him, the more astonishing he gets. Mm. The less mythical he gets, but the more astonishing. Mm. Um, I mean, I regard Spare's sigil magic as crumbs from his table um, and of much less significance than Spare's astonishing artistry. Yeah. Uh, with his illustrations, with his paintings, there is all the evidence that you could possibly need for the existence of the magical state, yeah. somehow miraculously captured as if he'd taken a Polaroid in there with him. Mm. Uh, that is where the magic of Austin Spare resides. A lot of um, the myth of Austin Spare, which is um, a very entertaining one, a lot of that would seem to have perhaps originated with Kenneth Grant, yeah. who was a great romanticist in terms of his view of magic. And there is something to be said for that. It was a a marvellous kind of, um, almost like a fantasy role-playing game. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Spare, uh, an astonishing artist, an astonishing man, and one of the very few magicians who doesn't seem to have used his magic for material gain, who in fact famously said, I believe, that he believed that it would be wrong hmm. to use his talent to attract so much as a penny. Um, certainly from the way that he lived, which was like William Blake from choice, both of them were born into perfectly decent middle-class families and both of them decided to live in the freedom that penury afforded. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't get much better than Austin Spare. I would probably still place John Dee as the greatest British magus. But even John Dee, he wasn't above tapping up the angels for a fiver yeah. now and again um, and that was that was a collaborative thing as well obviously with, with Kelly. Edward Kelly yeah. although Dee kept it up for a long time after Kelly had fallen I think fallen out of the window broken his legs when he was trying to escape from uh, the low countries um, and uh, but Dee right to the end uh, I mean his journals are poignant, poignant. Those final journals, his his Prospero moment when he was tended only by his surviving daughter and his spirits, uh, the moment that Shakespeare wrote uh, The Tempest about, you know, and in his last journal entries, he's asking the spirits, what should be done about the blood in his stool? And the spirits are saying, I shouldn't worry too much about that if I was you. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Yeah. Um, and he was dead within a couple of weeks. Wow. You know, but, uh, yeah, even he occasionally, and he was an astonishing man, but even he occasionally did ask the angels if he could maybe have uh, some petty cash um, to carry out their will. Yeah. You know. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. But, uh, yeah, I I do think that this this movement towards practical magic um, that arose in the 80s, I would point out that that wasn't the only thing that arose in the 80s and uh, that my friend, the writer John Higgs, he refers to chaos magic as Thatcherite magic uh, and I Which think that great. there is something to be said for that Yeah, that the pursuit of material pleasure uh, and hedonism yeah. uh, material wealth, uh, how does that differ from Thatcherism as a doctrine, which, along with chaos magic, pretty much originated in the 1980s. Yeah. You know, and the New Age movement. I've never thought those as a parallel. That's really true. Yeah. I mean, Mike, I, we, in the Book of Magic, me and Steve, in the final essay, which was actually written after his death, but after we'd spent a few months compiling the notes towards the final essay, which is our our thesis, I suppose. Mm. But in that, we come up with what we feel is a a better definition of magic. Um, we define magic as a purposeful engagement with the phenomena and possibilities of consciousness Hmm. Uh, we think that that includes all of what magic was and all of what magic can be Um, it's perhaps not as inspiring as or as resounding as do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law or (laughs) perhaps not as attractive as magic being um, bringing about change in the physical world in accordance with one's will Mm. but I think we're more accurate and I think that we're probably truer to the actual essence of what magic is and I think as well when when you um when you accept that then then change comes about anyway without without it being a desired like I've got to do this I'm going to draw this out and beat off over it because at this point I'm going to you know I'm going to get this and but I think that if if you um acknowledge the existence of it and and interact with it as you said then then you know you well, can look at it as synchronicities etc but that these things start the, the thing is one of the things with magic that I've always found in practical terms is um it's what I have come to define as high magic yeah as I understand it, high magic is where you haven't got the faintest clue what you're doing. <laughs> um, where you are recognising that the universe has probably got precedence and is probably quite entitled to pull rank upon you. It's not about what you want. Yeah. It's about what the universe wants through you. Yes. Um, this is how... Uh, creativity is best viewed um that the best creative artist should probably regard themselves as at best a clean window pane uh if window panes were animate and conscious and they probably will be in a pixar film within this millennium but sort of uh, they might look down at the beautiful rectangle of golden light that they're casting on the floor and think aren't I wonderful they, they might mistake themselves for the source of the light Yeah. Uh, and I think that this is an analogy that holds true with artists Yeah. that uh, we are at best windows that let the light in and probably the most that we can do is to try to be as clean as possible and also to have a window 
with a useful vantage and of the correct width and height make it as big as possible um let it allow it to let in as much light as possible but that doesn't mean that you're the sun you know yeah it's a thing worth remembering that's great it's very true i mean like the the main we 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 came to a lot of conclusions about magic perhaps conclusions is the wrong word we came to we made some what we felt were interesting observations um especially in that final essay uh which i don't want to entirely preempt but yeah. the basic thesis of it is that magic the original uh the origination of magic that would have occurred about 7000 years ago uh during what is known as the cognitive revolution okay. when we first started to get a handle upon language and as modern language theory and consciousness theory assures us language precedes consciousness or at least consciousness of the modern kind uh before that obviously we must have had awareness hmm. but it wasn't until we had language that modern consciousness happened now the um, astonishing jump between that simple primordial awareness and the entire haunted palace that is the experience of modern consciousness hmm. what must that have felt like to those human beings that were alive during that transition yeah um well, it would have been all the voices in your head um before you had a word for thoughts all the pictures in your head before you had a word for images or dreams before you had a concept for consciousness where could they have come from if not from gods from spirits from supernatural forces uh it seems like a pretty fair assumption to me yeah um from that we kind of so magic was originally our way of understanding consciousness as a whole it was our reaction to consciousness and if language must have a precursor in representation the idea that these marks on a cave wall or this sound somehow stands for that buffalo over there yeah that must so that is art in other words so art must precede language language must precede consciousness and the experience of all of these phenomena was what we called magic hmm. so magic was a one stop shop of uh, existence basically yeah um at least at its beginning and at its core was ecstasy um the ecstasy was what was being evoked by the shamans and shamankas uh that and in doing so they were creating almost the entirety of modern culture yeah dance theater painting s- songs music all of these things yeah art yeah as a way of altering the consciousness of the community of evoking ecstasy um now what happens is uh time moves on and we start to change and we somehow get the idea of um settlements uh we the agricultural revolution has happened and uh this makes urban uh dwelling possible for the first time and once you've got urban civilizations importantly people don't have to grow their own food this enables them to specialize yeah. so you're going to get a priest caste emerging that is going to set up formal religions or at least the beginnings of formal religions and that is going to take away all of magic's spiritual component 
then you're going to get those famous bastards, uh, artists, writers, and musicians coming into existence. They are going to take away magic's visionary capacity. Yeah. Um, but that's all right at first because magic has still got science or natural philosophy. Um, it's still got medicine. It's still got the inner world. Um, so that ticks along fairly nicely until, what, the Renaissance? At which point science is cleaved from magic. Because at that point they were running totally in parallel, weren't they? Well, they were the same thing. Yeah. There was no distinction. John Dee was one of the scientists, one of the giants that Isaac Newton was famously standing on the shoulders of. Um, he could not have done his work if Dee had not existed. Dee wrote the book upon navigation that made Britain probably, that gave it its famous British sea power. He wrote books upon mathematics. He was a scientist. Hmm. And he also spent a lot of his life talking to beings that for diplomacy's sake he had to describe as angels yeah uh so yeah all right science and medicine these are more or less taken away from magic to become parts of culture so magic is limping along with the inner world oh and it still has ecstasy because that is the one thing that um actually culture cannot assimilate um, an, an urban settled culture has no place for ecstasy it's the last thing you want people becoming ecstatic they don't do that according to a timetable <laughs> yeah. uh, it's spontaneous and it's socially disruptive uh, so you don't want ecstasy the formal religions that started up with their priesthoods acting as intermediaries yeah. between you and the gods that is almost like a prophylactic to prevent you coming into contact with any of that ecstasy stuff. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, we'd, we'd still got ecstasy, or at least those of us who knew how to conjure it. Um, but uh, other than that, we'd just got the, the interior world. Um, and then, what, 1910, Sigmund Freud, um, Carl Jung, these people come along and using ideas that have been commonplace in occult circles for centuries, mm. they um, start psychoanalysis as a movement, which I have described to friends of mine who are psychiatrists, psychoanalysts. Uh, I've described their field as basically occultism in a lab coat uh, because it cannot be a science. It's talking about the interior world where things cannot be reproduced in a laboratory, where things are not really available for empirical proof. Um, but yet yeah, the inner world was taken from magic as well, and then all it had got left was theatre. It had got the pretty frocks and the nicely painted wands and the rituals and the air, the aura of spookiness. Yeah. You know, which I think has been what has attracted most people to it um, for, well, most of the previous century. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. But it's funny that, that, that all of those, when you, when you lay that out like that, I mean, you, you say about settlement and stuff, and, you know, you look at all cultures and it seems to be that there are these beings that are, that are later interpreted as gods are the ones that have shown people architecture shown people um i'm not even sure and if they they ever existed except in an immaterial form hmm. in my experience that's what gods are they are extraordinarily complex um clusters of ideas yeah that have either become self-aware through the principle of consciousness as an emergent property of complexity, which I think is scientific, yeah. or they have become so complex that they appear to us 
to be self-aware. Um, so also, I think importantly, um, one of the other things that we talk about in this, this essay, and uh, this, I have to say, uh, is purely me. Um, Steve Moore was a little bit cautious about my assertion, although I was thinking about the, the origins of Christianity. Um, I was talking about Christianity and Gnosticism. Yeah. And how, yeah, they both emerged at the same time and both shared an awful lot of key figures. Uh, and I put it to Steve that I said, could we say that Gnosticism predates Christianity? And Steve said he didn't feel that that was safe because we did not have any proof that that was so. But I thought, uh, after he was safely dead and couldn't argue with me, I thought that sort of uh, you could probably come up with an argument from common sense in that, say, some historical figure, now dead, but who we both know was definitely alive. Um, say, say the entertainer Rod Hull, for example. Now, if for some reason uh, I was, let's say that I am the equivalent of a Christian in this argument, I suddenly think, you know, Rod Hull, I don't think he was just a great entertainer. I think that Rod Hull was actually the son of God and that an examination of Rod Hull's life would probably teach us an awful lot of profound spiritual lessons about what it is to be human. Um, now, I've said that for some reason. Uh, then you, as a smart, sophisticated Gnostic, which by that point had already absorbed Pythagoreanism and Platonism, you step into the picture and you say, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you that the figure of Rod Hull is a tremendously important spiritual figure. But you're going to propose that actually Rod Hull is a metaphor. Um, at which point I would say, but no, he, he, was, he was a real guy. Uh, I'm definitely going to believe that he was a real guy. Uh, but you say, no, 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 it's important that we see him as just a metaphor, which was the Gnostic position upon Jesus. Yeah. Now, how likely is that? If that would be a stupid thing to say on the part of the Gnostics in a century where this apparently famous man had died about 30 years before? Um, hmm. It seems more likely that uh, you had the Gnostics presenting their story of this symbolic saviour figure that had incorporated bits of Norse and Egyptian mythology into a lot of a, a broad spectrum of world mythologies had been incorporated into this figure, this symbolic figure. Hmm. And yes, he's born of a virgin, um, and he ascends physically to heaven um, after his death on the cross. Now, it seems to make more sense if you've got somebody saying, "Yeah, this is our symbolic idea of what a saviour might be." And we think that by studying these symbols, you might come to some form of enlightenment. And then the person that you're talking to says, yeah, and like he was definitely born of a virgin, you say. And you say, well, no, no not exactly. It's, it's symbolic. And they say, yeah, I'm definitely going to believe that. So he was definitely born of a virgin. And like he, he died and then he has said, that's fantastic. Um, I think that this is possibly how Christianity may have emerged as misunderstood Gnosticism hmm. from a religion that historically has been very literal in its kind of conception of reality. Um, so this is, this is one thing that suggests that idea forms probably precede the actual people, if actual people there were. Yeah. Um, it's sort of, I seriously doubt that any of the the gods existed in physical form or any of the creatures 
that inhabit our world's various mythologies. It seems very, very unlikely to me, according to what we know of the laws of physics and biology. That just doesn't seem possible. And it doesn't really need to be. Because the domain of gods is the world of the immaterial. And that's the only place where they need to be. And they can obviously... I mean, look at all of the holy wars that have been fought. These immaterial ideas obviously have the power to affect our material world in quite drastic ways. Yeah. You know. Well, that that start that makes me think of, of I, I heard um, you say in a in a previous interview about um, the idea of consciousness and and you were talking about Sheldrake and but that that made me kind of think of like the sort of Jungian thing as well about like this collective, collective unconscious, unconscious yeah. that as soon as as soon as those ideas exist they they do become real within well, the minds of the people that are thinking about them and and as you said like if somebody has an idea about something as soon as that idea exists somebody else is going to have it as well yeah uh, which kind of ties in with almost what we were saying about there is no need to have uh, an objective yeah. to your magical practice. Uh, you can let the universe take care of that. And this also ties into what the, the final conclusion of our book of magic is to say, yeah, with this process of magic having its various components hived off to become parts of society, um, what that is basically saying is that the entirety of our culture we are conducting that among the dismembered body of magic. Um, it's a dismembered corpse. Although, strangely, it still seems to be able to talk. Um, and we thought that this is probably best seen as an example of the alchemic a concept of solve et coagula. Yeah, and the great work. Yeah, that this is what it is all about. That sort of the principle of solve, it's basically analysis. It's taking the pocket watch to bits to its smallest component so that you understand how the whole thing works. And then there is the process of coagula, which is the process of synthesis. It's putting the thing back together in an improved or at least better understood form. And I think that as a civilization, we have probably reached um, the end of a very long process of solve. And I think that what kind of naturally has to happen is the beginning of a process of coagula putting these components of what was originally a science of existence, Hmm. a holistic science of existence, putting them back together in a a better understood form into something that could once again be a central way of dealing with our much more complex existential world. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I agree. And I, I think that that's how that's how I understand the alchemical process to be. You know, it's not about getting lead and turning it into gold. It's about, in the same way that, like, uh, from a Masonic perspective, taking a rough ashlar and and making it the smooth by taking symbols and 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 using them yeah. uh, as as a moral compass, not moral compasses, but just. Uh, as roadmaps to yeah. as 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 maps to higher realms of consciousness, yeah, or different realms of consciousness, mm. you know, yeah, yeah. It's uh, on. I also think that there is something about magic which is conspicuously lacking from modern culture. Yeah. Yes, we've got all the various dismantled parts of magic, but we don't have that, the essential animating ecstasy that was at the middle of it. Yeah. We don't have vision in our art or in our writing. 
I mean, yet yeah, vision. We are sorely lacking hmm. in vision. I think the worrying thing is, though, that, and I don't know if this is me putting my tinfoil hat on, but I th- that's something that I've noticed is that the general populace, shall we say, are, are exactly have no understanding or lacking the awareness to see those things, but other people do see that, and I believe that that's why they're they're using those things to a degree so that so that people can be manipulated and pumped with fear and well do do you you think or is that like i I find advertising and and the media is a it's if they're not consciously looking at it as a form of magic they still are using it as a form of magic absolutely i mean like i would I, i have said that uh yeah um magic is in some measure the art of manipulating consciousness uh hopefully manipulating consciousness into a higher a more aware a more ecstatic state yeah. um however the basic processes of it um you can manipulate consciousness for other ends hmm. and I suspect that, as you say, um, I doubt that our advertising agencies are <laughs> actually reading up on LFS Levi or anything else. Yeah. But I think that it is just that these principles have become kind of obvious and apparent. Yeah. Um, I mean, we understand things like uh, the placebo principle yeah. a lot better these days. Uh we also understand that there is a nocebo principle. This is where you give people a sugar pill and you tell them that it may have side effects of nausea, headaches, vomiting, temporary blindness, whatever, hmm. and they will report exactly those effects. Yeah. Um, it suggests that uh, the mind um, is actually much more at the centre of our reality than we had supposed. Hmm. Uh, We, in terms of our physical existence, as creatures made of what Steve Aylett, the wonderful writer, referred to as haunted beef, then, I mean, like, with with our our physical bodies, that, that would seem, it seems to indicate that the division between mind and body is um, by no means as clear-cut as we'd previously believed, if it's there at all. Hmm. Uh, In our physics, we have reached a point with quantum physics where um, quantum reactions apparently depend upon the observer, Uh, which, of course, begs a lot of questions, which I've just been reading about in this week's New Scientist. But But still... This positions the mind at the very centre of reality. Hmm. It's a kind of um, reverse Copernicus, I suppose you could call it. You know, uh, and that would seem to be the way that the conclusion to which our science is moving. That yes, we have stopped thinking that the whole universe revolves around the Earth. Yeah, uh, but. In some ways, our science tends to indicate that the whole of reality does revolve around the human mind, or is at least only apparent to yeah. the human mind, is entirely a phenomenon of human perception. Hmm. Uh, which, if that is true, then that goes a long way to explaining um, an awful lot of the processes of magic. Yeah. You know?
Thank you for listening to episode 12 with Alan Moore. That was part one of the conversation with him. Uh, the second part is going to continue along similar paths, but we discuss his novel Jerusalem, HP Lovecraft and more. So remember to subscribe on iTunes. If you leave a nice review and a rating, that will be, uh, you know, I'll be happy for uh, a short while, but that's better than nothing. Right, so we're up to part 10 of Providence. And if you haven't been reading that, that's his latest comic. It's amazing. You need to check it out straight away. And you can pre-order Jerusalem online now. Uh, hit me up at Daniel P. Carter on Twitter and Instagram. Like I said, subscribe, share the love, tell everybody about it. Part- Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Two will be up very soon. Thanks a lot. Peace.